Curiosity. Kill the rat. Curiosity. Kill the rat. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Curiosity Killed the Rat. My name is Matt, and before I go any further, I would like to start by saying I am speaking from lands traditionally owned by the Noongar people. It is wonderful to speak with you, my wonderful beautiful, scientifically <laughs> learned co-host. It's, it's so funny watching your face. I know none of the listeners can see it, but I hope that they can hear it in your voice when you get to that part where you have to introduce me. And every time you're like, I didn't think of adjectives again. I can't say illustrious. I've said wonderful three times already. <laughs> so you know what? Next time, if I remember, which I probably won't, I will get a little pocket thesaurus with me and I will just make my way through it alphabetically <laughs> to describe Look, you. Kate. If you haven't done it by Christmas, I know what I'm getting you. That's <laughs> all I'm saying. That works for me. How are you going, Kate? Yeah, I I am here. And before I launch into how I'm going and who I am, I would like to acknowledge that me and not just me, but we we have not one, but two people joining us today. And the three of us are recording from lands traditionally owned by the Wurundjeri people. And yeah, I don't ask me how I am. That's just rude this time of year. Don't ask people how they are. Then they have to answer honestly. I apologize. It's honestly a muscle memory thing at this point. When you <laughs> enter into conversation with someone, just like, how you going? Even though deep down, we know we're all feeling shit, but yet no one, yeah, no one look, actually says that out loud. Like, come on. We're surviving. That's we're it. surviving is where we're at at the moment. And that's, that's a okay. Cause I'm here to survive and I'm here to I'm get survivor, real hyped about I'm the a believer. Yeah, exactly. That, that's me. And I'm hyped about the science that we're going to talk about today and to just not be the one doing the teaching, but doing the learning for the most part. Mm -hmm. And it's going to be real fun. But for those of you who have not listened to the show before, I am the regular scientist. I'm a neuroscientist. Um, so all this space stuff that we're talking about today is very, very out of my field of knowledge. So I'm very excited to... It's out of this world. Out of my world. <laughs> yeah. Nice. Buckle up and learn. And so, yeah, I'm joined by... <laughs> resident space expert Benji Metha, who is just somehow here again. I'm back. Um, but he's not important today, so we're going to move straight along. We're he's also joined, very vibes. fortunately, by Stephanie. Hi, how's it going? Hey, my name's Stephanie Bernard. I am from the University of Melbourne, where I'm a PhD student studying galaxies in the early universe using space telescopes like Hubble and the Spitzer Space Telescope, um, but also pretty familiar with the James Webb Space Telescope. Uh, I also work at ScienceWorks Museum and Planetarium. There's a cat in the background. It's a dog. Oh, it's a dog. Yeah. Okay, cool. <laughs> <laughs> but sorry. Once again, apologies to all of our audio, you know, medium listeners at home that can't witness my beautiful husky in the background of my Zoom call, but he's gorgeous. He's I mean, cool. hey, Kate, if you plug your own Insta at the end of this, our listeners can get plenty Hondo content. Yeah, I'll, I promise now if you follow us at Curiosity Rat on Instagram, I'll post some Hondo pics later. Absolutely. <laughs> Um, anyway, yes, I work at ScienceWorks Museum and Planetarium as well, where I do science shows for all sorts of different audiences, from prep students yesterday through to adults, 
uh, and the Victorian Space Science Education Centre where I do education programs with primary and secondary school students. So you're absolutely the right person to have on the show teaching us. I hope so. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. And I'm very excited. I believe we'll probably hear mostly about Hubble-related stuff uh, today because I know we've had a couple of James Webb episodes so far. (laughs) That's my fault. <laughs> no, don't it's apologize. Exciting. It's, I mean, it's, it's a like very it's exciting thing. It's the hot thing, thing happening in science that is not COVID. So I am all for James yeah. Honestly, we did how many COVID episodes? We did a whole three-parter in Once you include the vaccine plus, episodes oh, and the soap episode, like, you know, yeah. we like <laughs> to be topical. And we probably will touch on some cool James Webb's updates that have happened because I believe our most recent episode was just before any of the uh, mm-hmm. pictures had been released or anything. So... You know, we might get there. We might discuss some of that. But I saw yeah. some very pretty Jupiter photos, and that's oh yes, yeah. extremely exciting. Uh, I sent all of my first years, and there are three hundred and thirty of them. Uh, a little email this morning, being like, "Look at this! <laughs> Isn't it cool?" <laughs> um, yeah, but I also host a podcast called Spaghettification, where we interview astronomers. Uh, me and the president of the Astronomical Society of Victoria, Marcus Garo. We do interviews with all sorts of different people and you should listen to it. Yes, absolutely. We're here for cross promo, cross, cross podcast promo. <laughs> Check it out. Um, but sure, do you want to launch us into it? Is there anywhere that you wanted to start or anything that you particularly wanted to talk to us about? Yeah, or do you want us to just off? like, you know, yeah, launch in with questions? So we're talking about yeah, Hubble I don't today, really have right? Particular to start, I can give you a bit of a history of Hubble if you'd like. Um, I guess just for the people, because I know we've talked a lot once again about James Webb and why it's so mm-hmm. exciting and big, and you know we kind of mentioned that a lot of the reason on previous podcasts that it's it's bigger and better than Hubble in certain mm-hmm. ways. Um, but just like for people at home that are like, yeah, but yeah. what like Hubble? What like I know it's maybe a telescope, but like have no idea whatsoever what yeah, Hubble yeah, even. Yeah is or like why it's still cool even though james webb's up there like just what's hubble i'm I'm on the other end of the spectrum i got too many hubbles i know there's a hubble there's a guy there's a law there's a constant (laughs) but what hubble are you talking about all right look look, (laughs) tell tell me about the telescope i guess (laughs) yeah so we're talking about the hubble space telescope which is a really amazing telescope that was launched in the 1990 basically um hashtag people had sort of been proposing to put a telescope in space for a while beforehand. So Lyman Spitzer was sort of thought of the father of space telescopes. Um, And so there are a lot of reasons for doing that. It costs a lot. um, And so you really have to justify why you want to do this. And so the thing about our atmosphere is it's great. It helps us breathe, but whatever. We love that. Whatever. Whatever Whatever she says. Breathing, schmeeding. It really blocks a lot of light. and specific wavelengths of light, it blocks a lot. So it blocks a lot of our ultraviolet light, blocks a lot of our even optical light, honestly. You know, a lot gets through. We see the sun in the sky every day. Um, but a lot of it also just gets blocked out and it really blocks infrared light. Some wavelengths that get completely blocked by particular molecules, especially in the atmosphere, like water and oxygen, nitrogen and those sort of things. Mm, those, you know, key main major yeah, components yeah, exactly. that make up the majority <laughs> of our atmosphere. It's like less yep. than 1% of space. It's nothing. <laughs> but like our atmosphere. Um, and also our atmosphere is turbulent. So just like we have wind on the ground, uh, up in the higher atmosphere, we have all sorts of different, you know, wind currents and things that blur images basically. Um, and so that's, you know, partly why observatories get built 
on top of mountains is so that they're above a lot of the atmosphere. I'd never thought of the idea of actual wind moving, the fact that the atmosphere is a turbulent thing, distorting and yeah. blurring images, but that makes absolute total sense. A fluid yeah. moving around can warp and distort images just as much as anything else. That is that yeah. is very fun. Well, fun depends if you want a blurry image or not. I That's don't know. Not fun for people who fun. want to look at good images of the sky. Not fun for them. But a fun concept to learn about. Yeah, it's sort of like um, might have done the experiment at school where you shine the light through air and then it goes into the glass prism or something and it changes its direction. Mm. And so a turbulent atmosphere means that some patches are more dense than others and some are less dense. And so the light just gets bent all around and it eventually makes a little circle on your image um, if you're looking at stuff. If you're looking at a galaxy, they tend to be much bigger and you don't get that effect so badly. But if you're above the atmosphere, you don't have that problem at all. So you can have your really beautifully, um, you know, your close to theoretical maximum resolution without the atmosphere coming in and ruining everything. Mm. Um, and so, yeah, that's a big, a big part of why we also have space telescopes because, um, you know, we want to, you know, as astronomers, you know, we always want to be getting the next best observation. So, you know, we, you know, started out taking a spectrum of one galaxy, you know, uh, I think it's Slofer in um, the early 1900s, um, you know, took all these galaxy spectra that Hubble then used to develop his Hubble's law. Um, and then, you know, in the 1990s, we had uh, in Coonabarabran in New South Wales, the Angle Australian Telescope had the two-degree field um, instrument, 2DF we call it, and that could suddenly take 400 galaxy spectra oh, in a wow. single image. And that just really opened up the whole area of galaxy studies. Um, and so Benji knows why spectra is important, but <laughs> everyone else may not. Um, and so spectra really give you what sort of elements are in these galaxies. You know, how fast are things moving in these galaxies? How bright are different parts of the galaxy at different wavelengths, which tells you a bit about what sorts of stars are there. Um, so all these sort of things are really important. And so if you want to look at particular objects, some objects are really bright at ultraviolet wavelengths. Some objects are really bright at infrared wavelengths. And so if our atmosphere is blocking them, we can't get any information about them at all. And so Hubble was built to sort of get around a lot of these things. Um, and so it costs a lot of money. You know, we hear about James Webb costing, you know, billions and billions of dollars. Um, but people had the same complaints about Hubble when it was built. Um, Hubble is in low Earth orbit. So it had the big advantage that we had a space, we had a space shuttle program um, through NASA, which could send shuttles to Hubble. So Discovery, you know, launched it. It was like tucked away inside the shuttle um, body and then released <laughs> into low Earth orbit. Um, then you could go up and you could also upgrade it and things as well, um, which was really useful. And Kate heard this story mm. the other week <laughs> that um, when it was originally launched, there was a very, very, very tiny error in the shape of the mirror. And so with telescopes, you can have either a mirror, which will take any photons that are coming from the sky and then reflect them off the mirror, usually onto a secondary mirror that then sends it into your instruments. Or you have a refractor, which has a giant lens that basically takes that light and then focuses it into an instrument that way. So usually we use reflectors because reflectors, they get really, really long as you're trying to like focus this light. Um, so, you know, 
reflecting telescopes are much shorter you know probably about half the the size um so if you've gone to any old observatories they do tend to have these big refracting telescopes and they're really cool because they're just like three meters long or something <laughs> there's one in sydney um but yeah hubble has a big mirror and so to get the reflection happening just right uh the shape of the mirror has to be right and so hubble had what we call a spherical aberration so it was ground to be sort of like a spherical mirror rather than an elliptical one. I'm making lots of motions with my hands that no one who is listening will be able to see. <laughs> but, um, yeah, that really affects the image quality. So it was launched and actually all of that absence of blurring that you would expect from a space telescope was still there. And everyone was like, why do we bother? <laughs> um, and so fortunately because it was available, able to be um, fixed, you know, they could go up, they could add in – um, extra sort of optics to correct for that mm. um, incorrect mirror. A little repair mission. I want to see a sci-fi yeah. spin-off of the repair <laughs> mission. Right. Mm. Oh, that would be fun. It's just so ironic, right? You go all the way yeah. to space so that the oh, atmosphere yeah. doesn't smudge up your images and then there's a bloody smudge on the lens. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> just imagine you get up there and it yeah, turns and out can... someone just like has a put a massive fingerprint on the lens and you can't get up yeah. there. All the, all the photos come back with a thumb over it. <laughs> Comes back and someone <laughs> left the lens cap on the whole time. Who let dad build Hubble? Um, And yeah, so one of the reasons that the James Webb Space Telescope has this hexagon sort of shape, one of them is because it is hard to make a really big mirror all in one piece. Um, Glass is heavy. And so if you're relying on this really, really precise shape for your telescope and glass is really heavy and it starts to sag, then you're degrading basically that very carefully expensively ground <laughs> shape um so splitting it up into separate mirrors gives you a lot more um flexibility with how big you can make it mm. of course james Webb is going to space and so it all had to you know fold up into a tiny rocket um but then also if you have this sort of problem where your optics are not exactly 100 percent right if your mirror is made up of different segments you can sort of move them around mm. individually to try and yeah because that was a um, huge process in james webb right was the, yeah exactly like, getting all an alignment these, of all these yeah. little portions so is hubble all just like one yes bit? so it's one 2.4 meter mirror um which is what well, one waluigi that's at yeah. least a, a waluigi and a half right there oh yeah, yeah. i forgot about the <laughs> waluigi like metric a and a half. um <laughs> yeah so the biggest Telescopes that we have on the ground are um, Grand Canarius in the Canary Islands, which is 10.1 metres, mm. and the Keck telescopes in Hawaii and Mauna Kea are 10 metres each. Um, so I actually don't remember. I, I don't remember if Grand Canarius is uh, segmented, which is what we call mm. this process of mm. having lots of separate mirrors all together. But Keck certainly is segmented because once you get above about 8 metres, then you can't really use a single piece of glass anymore Mm -hmm. um so yeah we already had this sort of segmented thing like tested on on the ground um in a you know slightly larger context as well Mm -hmm. so yeah that's why they sort of went with that for james webb but yeah hubble is um one giant mirror which yeah was ground wrong Mm. (laughs) which and it's really just like when you think of a telescope mirror if you took that mirror and you expanded it to sort of the size of the earth, mm. like you're really talking like tiny, tiny fluctuations uh, in the smoothness of the mirror. Otherwise it just starts to degrade the performance. Um, and I forget exactly what scale it is um, when you look at the earth, but it's really like uh, smaller than 
you know, mountains and things <laughs> on the whole scale of the earth. Um, they're really incredible. Like the process of grinding is um, – it takes a long time. It takes, I don't know, these really big ones that they're building like the um, – what is it called? Giant Magellan Telescope, which is going to be a 25-meter mirror Holy in Chile. crap. Um, made up of seven eight-meter telescopes, <laughs> like eight-meter mirrors. Okay, so each of the mirrors are as big as you can go and then you staple yeah. seven of them together. Exactly, but then because you have your center mirror and then you have six around the outside, each of those six on the outside, they're not like a you know a regular parabola. They have like a sort of like half or part parabola shape. So you have to like grind them like carefully, and oh, it's amazing. If that's <laughs> watching some of the videos of it is, um, I don't know if that's the sort of thing that anyone else would care about, but I'm just like, wow. <laughs> if that kind of mirror is um, is on Earth, if that kind of mirror is on Earth, how do you? Yes keep that clean 25 meters worth of mirror that would get so much dust on it so quickly how do you get on that make sure it stays shiny and polished without further smudging up the mirror or damaging it or breaking it yeah and definitely especially like um the giant metal gel and telescope the location that it is is in a desert in Chile, basically, because you want to have the least moisture you can, because as we just heard, moisture absorbs light. It, you know, makes, mm. um, degrades images. our images a little bit. Um, and so that, you know, that means you've got a lot of dust around. <laughs> um, Sandstorms. <laughs> yeah. And so telescopes, um, they do have a process called re-illuminizing, which is where the mirror gets taken out of the telescope using lots of very heavy equipment, <laughs> uh, gets, uh, I think the Anglo-Australian Telescope, I think they have a location on the site where they can do this process, um, where they basically clean it. They put um, a new coating of um, reflective material on it. Um, but this doesn't happen very often. I think it happens every few years or so. Mm. Um, but often you look at the telescope mirror and it just does have dust on it. But actually it doesn't affect the mirror that much. Um, I've, I looked at the... Schmidt Telescope, which is also a uh, sighting spring observatory in New South Wales. And yeah, that has a bit of a layer of dust and, you know, it just doesn't doesn't affect you that much. You know, your mirror is so large, your photons are really, really small. Um, and so... I suppose I don't really notice how dirty my glasses get a lot of the time. Yeah. <laughs> then I take them off and every now and then I'm like, holy fuck, have this that many smudges? But then I do notice when I clean them and then I put them back on. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's probably how it feels yeah. like for those astronomers. <laughs> yeah. But the thing is, um, and like this is a, a problem where like, you know, you want to be using telescopes. And so if you have to, you know, take a week off for this re-illuminizing process, you know, you then you're not taking data so like it's one of those like maintenance things where you have to do it but you want to go as long as you can without doing it's it. a pit stop yeah mm. so do you reckon like this hubble tragedy where it's like yeah. they grind this down there's a tiny little imperfection do you reckon that's why james webb got delayed so much because everyone was less like triple checking everything after this well yeah absolutely so benji and i we have the same supervisor at melbourne uni michele trenti um and He's heavily involved with a lot of space telescope um, stuff. And so talking to him about the process of, you know, James Webb getting ready to be launched because we know that it was meant to be launched hopefully originally in, in 2018 and then it got delayed to 2020 and then delayed again to 2021. Uh, and so, you know, one of the problems was that uh, telescopes, especially ones going to space, undergo a lot of different tests and so one of them is the shake tests so um you put the telescope on a um a big uh 
board, I guess. And then you shake it really, really hard to sort of simulate. It's just so entertaining. I'm just picturing like jelly on a yeah. plate. And yeah. With a yeah. telescope <laughs> on a plate. Um, Six yeah, so you basically. Jelly. S- <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. You're simulating what it's going to be like as it goes in its rocket and it gets launched up into space and it does a, like, you know, a huge amount of speed and energy and all that sort of stuff going on. And so Hubble had this test and, you know, at the end they found all these screws had like fallen out of it. And so it was like, where did these all come uh, from? <laughs> and so, it's not what you want to find on the floor. <laughs> no, not at all. Uh, and so, yeah, that took a lot of um, effort. <laughs> yeah, there was a problem that um, I forget exactly what it was, but there was a, la- a delay caused by I think one of the contractors that was working on it. Um, so, yeah, it really was a case of like, because James Webb is not in near Earth orbit and also we don't have a shuttle program anymore anyway, so we're li- relying on either private companies like SpaceX or on Russian satellites, which we can't do at the moment for obvious reasons, um, you want to have everything perfect before it launches. Uh, and so, like, Benji was really excited about the launch and was like, I'm watching the live stream. And I was just like, no, I'm not. What if it blows up? I can't <laughs> <do that." laughs> Because, like, I didn't, it didn't even occur to me that it would blow up until, you know, someone at a conference was like, you know what if that happens <laughs> i don't oh even gosh. want to entertain the thought yeah gosh if yeah because we... am i like correct in in that you can't perform little repair missions on james no. Webb the same way that you can on hubble because it's just so much further away it's so far away yeah so so hubble is 400 kilometers above the earth james Webb is you know a million and a half kilometers away <laughs> from the earth um it's <laughs> yeah and we just don't have that capability to get people out there to perform these sort mm. of fixes um which is a shame um yeah so it's it's really one of those things you've got to get it right the first time or it's just not going to happen and the way that it was designed it's got so many different failure points like the whole sun shield is like a potato chip packet basically and like if it had ripped as it was unfolding you know oh fuck <laughs> um that's it Game you over. know, you've got all those 18 different segments, uh, you know, that are all held together with um, probably very expensive screws and things. My brain just went glue and string, but obviously not true. <laughs> duct tape. Always duct tape. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, although I did go to a telescope, um, which I will name. It was uh, Skymapper. <laughs> <laughs> name and shame. <laughs> uh, and Skymapper very famously had a problem where for some reason it just had this shaking. And you can probably imagine that shaking a mirror as it's trying to take images is not very good for not the ideal, quality of your image. I can imagine. <laughs> um, and so I went on an observing trip to the Anglo-Australian Telescope when I was uh, at the end of my undergrad. And my supervisor at the time was the project scientist for SkyMapper. So we went, because um, it's at the same site, we you know went down the road to check it out and just put like cut open tennis balls and bits of foam just around various places to see if that helped with the shaking. <laughs> and it didn't. <laughs> But they figured that out eventually as well. So, you know, telescopes on the ground, you can fix them. You know, if they don't work perfectly the first time, whatever. But a space telescope, you've got one chance. (laughs) And um, so, yeah, they're very risky but very high reward. So, I mean, Hubble, the use cases for Hubble when it was originally proposed are things that, like, you wouldn't even think of as Hubble uses now. Let me me look them up very – not on Wikipedia. (laughs) (laughs) What's wrong with Wikipedia? <laughs> yeah. No, well, I yeah. always tell my students, like, for basic space facts, Wikipedia is generally fine because astronomers are not the sort of people who will let incorrect things go, just, like, same for a lot of like, uh, like 
microbio stuff, I find that like, yeah. you know, who's there making up fake facts about <laughs> shit like that that no one else cares about? I mean, with Wikipedia and citing it, you know, you you um you can't cite you can't cite Wikipedia, but the trick that I figured out is because Wikipedia has citations and sources. You get your quote from Wikipedia, you find the source that they cited, yes. and then and you then cite you make that sure that source. they've quoted that source correctly. And they didn't quote Wikipedia back. Mm-hmm. Um, but any students <laughs> <that's> listening? Yes. <laughs> I mean, look, this is coming from the only person here without a bachelor degree. Don't necessarily <laughs> take my advice on proper source citation. That's just how I trudged my way through the small amount of uni that I did. No, I I really love the concept of Wikipedia being a massive free source of information mm. because I strongly, strongly, as anyone who has listened to this podcast before or has met me more than once, believe that knowledge should not be gatekept in any way, mm. shape or form. And Wikipedia is something that does allow, you know, people that don't have accessibility to high level education that we've had to get access to knowledge that they wouldn't otherwise. But in terms of like, you know, if you're looking for making sure you're getting the correct cold, hard scientific facts. Sure, go to Wikipedia, but then, like, go to the citations that Wikipedia gives you and read the actual papers to make sure that Wikipedia's gotten it right, you know, if you're a student of science. That's that's my... Those are my official thoughts. And if you're a student of science, you don't need to buy textbooks. I know they say you do, but you don't. (laughs) Yeah, and I wish somebody had told me that, like, anyhow. If anyone's out there listening, you're welcome. (laughs) Um, so Wikipedia doesn't have the original uh, proposed programs, which is very rude. Because, mm. um, like, I'm interested in, like, yeah, I feel like I've heard lots about, like, oh, James Webb is cool because it can do this and now we can do this. But, like, I don't know what Hubble could do. Like, I don't know. Yeah. Like, what have you been doing for the last however many years of your life? Like, oh, so many. You know, <laughs> um, what, like. Just let me go. <laughs> let me die. <laughs> <laughs> No, No, I'm sure, like, you wouldn't still be doing it if it wasn't cool shit that made you excited. So I want to hear why Uh, it's it's cool and why it excites you. Yeah, it's really nice. Like, we have an undergrad working um, with my supervisor at the moment, and he's working with some Hubble data just as a start to, like, get um, get familiar with, you know, the process of using this data. And I was so excited telling him like, this is what we do with it. This is what, this is what this means. (laughs) We use this program called Source Extractor, which is basically just like a, a computer goes through an image, finds the bright things and tags them essentially. And I was just like, yeah, let me give you all of my notes from when I was in master's. (laughs) Um, Sorry, um, Steffi, did you say source extractor? Yes, I did. I thought you were going to refer to it by its abbreviation on this podcast. By its by its, by its proper name, name. sex tractor. <laughs> <laughs> um, the command line to call it for the longest that. time was just sex. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's extremely embarrassing. <laughs> no, it's great. I, that, I mean, it's fine when you're on your own, one. but if you're talking to it with literally anyone, it's just like... Oh. When I had to go to my superiors <laughs> to get them to explain sex yeah. to me, it was pretty embarrassing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah so um hubble has lots and lots of different instruments um one of the great things about it being a low earth orbit as we've already said many times being able to be serviced was that various instruments could get replaced as technology improved you could add new things to it and replace things that stopped working um so hubble's sort of workhorse i would say is what we call imaging so when we think of observations there's often two different types of observations. You've got imaging, which is basically just what is in the sky at this location. 
Um, and, you know, as you get better and better imaging, you tend to find more and more stuff basically. And I was telling my undergrads this literally today, like they use um, a 50 meter telescope, not 50. Oh my gosh. <laughs> That's a large <laughs> telescope. <laughs> Oh, that's a blooper. A uh, 50 <laughs> centimeter telescope. Um, oh, okay. okay. That's a bit for, of a difference. For 10 minutes. And they have an image of a galaxy cluster. Trying to find galaxies in it is really tricky because they're not very bright objects um, in the scheme of things. So, you know, they're trying to find spiral galaxies and elliptical galaxies. And there's a lot of stars in the image. And I'm like, okay, this is a star. This is a star. This is probably an elliptical. And they're just like, ooh, what? <laughs> And, you know, I go back and I'm like, okay, this is this is why I say this because I've been doing this for 10 years and this is how my brain works now. <laughs> um, yeah, I get that. It must be looking like – because I know when I first started doing microscopy stuff, you know, yeah. very, very different scale looking yeah. at tiny, yeah. tiny things instead yeah. of, you know, big things far away, um, yeah. tiny things up close. But, like, I would look at images of, like, brain slices and my supervisor would be yeah. like, oh, yeah, that's this type of cell and that's this yeah. brain region. You can tell because you can see that white matter tract. Mm-hmm. I'm like, what white matter tract? Like, yeah. what are you talking <laughs> Whereas now I'm like, I see it and I can, yeah. like, you know. Yeah. But I imagine it must be a similar sort of thing where there's this process of like, you're like, there is no way I will ever get to the level where I can look at that image and interpret that as anything other than like colored dots and weird lines. But like you do get there, I imagine. Yeah, a lot of science is just practice, you know, repeating the same thing over and over until you can write a paper about it. Um, So, yeah, so imaging, yeah, so my students are using the small telescope um, but then we, you know, we looked on Wikipedia for a, another version. We're looking at the Virgo cluster. So there are lots and lots of different images because the Virgo cluster is one of the closest galaxy clusters to us. So it's pretty easy to study. Um, and it's also got the massive galaxy M87 in it, which um, was pretty famous a few years ago because it was the first galaxy to have the supermassive black hole at its center image. So mm. I was like, hey, guys, this is pretty cool. It doesn't look like much because, you know, <laughs> it's not a very deep image um but just showing them you know like as you add more and more information to your images you can find more and more stuff basically so that's imaging is finding out where stuff is and then generally what we have is what we call f- sort of various forms of follow-up and so spectroscopy is um the main sort of one i would think of um where we have uh, we split the light up into the different wavelengths and so then again you can see you know, various different sorts of light get emitted for various different physical processes. Um, so what physical processes are happening in this object that I'm looking at? Um, but then you also have other cameras which give you more imaging but at different wavelengths again. And so you can sort of build up this picture, um, I don't—I mean holistic picture, I guess, of what's happening in this area of the universe. <laughs> um, so yeah, Hubble had a lot of really great um, cameras, uh, imaging cameras that could sort of take these ultraviolet and, and infrared um, images, not for the first time because you can do it from the ground. It's just very low efficiency basically, but much higher efficiency. And but I'm sorry, I'm, I'm, <laughs> you guys can't see this if you're listening, but I'm doing like ground bases like closer to my lap and then like <laughs> up in the space bases. <laughs> the number of times on this podcast <laughs> that I've been doing all these physical gestures and had to stop and be like, Right. So for those yeah. of you listening at home. Yeah. <laughs> and just is a premium content. Uh, <laughs> subscribe to our Patreon, Curiosity uh, Rat, and you may not get some images of ham gestures, <laughs> but do it anyway. Yeah, so so you're adding all this different information in. And so um, 
infrared cameras are pretty special as well because they are tricky. Um, you know, we might you might have heard that infrared light, we sort of think of it as heat. And so electronic devices, they let out heat. And so they let out infrared photons. Mm. And so Hubble being an electronic device. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, you know, up in space, which is great because space is pretty cold. Space is three degrees Kelvin. So um, that helps you out with keeping things cold, but you also need a source of, of cooling. Um, and so, you know, it's easy to make optical um, sensors. It's harder to make infrared sensors. It's hard to make good quality ones. Um, but Hubble did get eventually um, good quality near-infrared imaging. Um, uh, it can take spectra at ultraviolet wavelengths which you know not really possible beforehand because with spectra you really want high efficiency if you've got a low efficiency on the ground you're lucky to get an image you're not really going to be able to take that light which you're not getting a lot of coming towards you and splitting that up into the, all the different wavelengths you know if you want to split into 100 different wavelengths you've got 100th of the light basically at each of those wavelengths so it's just it's hard I have a lot of gripes about observing. <laughs> this is my therapy. <laughs> use, use this. This is the therapy. My actual session. therapist is, you know, a therapist, not an astronomer. Oh. So. <laughs> so astronomer therapy. We all need it. <laughs> Astrotherapy. But yeah, and so Hubble is great. It allowed a lot of things that we couldn't do. It allowed a lot of discoveries that we had no idea were out there in the universe. You know, like the 20th century, it was a really amazing time for physics in general, but astronomy as well, because, you know, our technology of building telescopes just got better and better and better, taking advantage of increases in, you know, digital sort of technology, going from photographic techniques through to digital sort of um, observing. Amazing. allowed a lot more um, efficient... I hate saying efficient so much because it sounds like a mm. you know business word, <laughs> but this is more of a technical efficiency, as oh, yeah. in like, so mm, like how much, you know how, how much, much light that is hitting us can we can we pick up rather than you know how much more money can we make out of you? <laughs> um, yeah, and so yeah, Hubble was really I would say sort of the pinnacle of that technological um, advancement. So it was one of the what we call great observatories, and so there are a few that were launched around similar times. One of them was the Chandra X-ray Telescope, which is amazing and x-rays are again light just like f um, optical photons that Hubble is mostly getting but higher energy and so because they're higher energy you can't use a standard mirror bouncing photons from you know outer space into your secondary mirror into your instrument because the x-rays will just bounce straight off back into outer space <laughs> and so you have to make sort of like a tube basically where you direct these photons down down the tube to your instrument so yeah you need a a different sort of telescope for higher energy photons. Um, so Chandra is amazing, looked at black holes mostly as well as some other X-ray sources in the universe. Spitzer, which is um, one of my favourites, we call it affectionately the trash can because it was small um, but <laughs> mighty, like a trash can. And <laughs> <laughs> um, so that was an infrared telescope. So Hubble can go out to the near-infrared and then it stops. It doesn't have any filters, basically, that can take in light at radio wavelengths. Whereas Spitzer sort of started that, at that point and then went on to radio wavelengths, more infrared wavelengths, out to the mid-infrared. Um, but Spitzer, because it's a small telescope, only a meter in diameter, just couldn't um, get the same resolution. So 
Um, and again, because it's an infrared telescope, it needed cooling. And so Spitzer ran out of cooling um, after a few years, basically, of taking observations. It sort of kept kicking in this, um, what do we call it? Um, warm mission, <laughs> obviously. <laughs> I was going to say half alive, half dead state. But <laughs> <laughs> Your friend here, he's not technically dead. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it still works. Part it's dead. just a bit blurry. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, so yeah, so it doesn't have the same resolution as Hubble. So it's sort of a shame in that if you have Spitzer observations of objects, you have to like blur your beautiful, crisp, high resolution Hubble images to match the Spitzer so that you can um, compare them. Uh, and it sucks. I hate it. <laughs> and then you have to um, you blur the Hubble image so that it matches the Spitzer, and then you like not sharpen, but you like um, what's the word, Benji, when you, like, take an object and split it up into finer things, interpolate, sort of? Anyway, you split up the Spitzer thing so you can um, compare uh, things. So, yeah, it's a roundabout process using it. But, yeah, so Spitzer sort of stopped working <laughs> eventually because it ran out of cooling and also just got very old. Um, Possibly, like, very naive question, but when you're, yeah. like, comparing Hubble and Spitzer mm -hmm. images, like, yeah. what, are you, what are you doing that for? Like, what are you looking for? Yeah, so I haven't actually talked about anything like what <laughs> we would look at with Hubble, have I? Um, so again, like, I why have do, why should I care you. about space? Oh. Yeah. Um, okay. Well, <laughs> I care about space. No, but no, like genuinely, okay. no, in this terms is of actually like this is actually a. Um, I think I'm reading a paper literally today called "The Sky as a Social Field" by Stanislav Ivanishevsky uh, uh, from. National Institute of Anthropology and History in Mexico City. Um, and so this paper is all about, and when I'm in the planetarium and we talk about the sky, you know, I do it three times a day, often <laughs> when I'm there. Um, one of the things is like, the sky is just something that belongs to all of humanity. Um, and so before we, and this is, I'm sort of saying this before we started recording, but, um, you know, before we had our modern times, it was really common for people to just go out and look at the sky and, you know, telling stories about the sky, looking at how it changed. This was something that not just, you know, people whose job title was astronomer. And there were people whose job title was astronomer back to, you know, 0 BC and, and beforehand. Um, but ordinary people would look at the sky. They would use it to tell the time before we had calendars. They would tell stories with it. Um, and it would just be a big part of their lives that we sort of lose these days because of light pollution because, you know, um, it's night time. I'm in my house. I don't want to go outside. It's cold. <laughs> um, mood uh, right now. Mood. <laughs> um, and so this paper is all about how, you know, um, the sky is sort of a part of, you know, the society basically of people. Um, a, a heterogeneous space in which all important types of relationships could happen. Um, so, yeah, I think, you know, it's, mm. it's not just the science that we get from doing astronomy. Um, and astronomy is a really difficult science to do. Um, I'm not just saying this, you know, to be like, I do have a real job, mom. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, um, you know, we it, other areas of physics, you can, you know, hold your things in your hand. You know, if you're uh, a lot of things that wouldn't be advised, but, you know, you can hold an example of a semiconductor in your hand or something. You can't see the atoms inside it that are giving you the actual special properties of semiconductors, but, you know, you can do that. You know, you can get a sample of a, you know, uh, Bose-Einstein condensate and, you know, um, keep it in a magnetic cooling trap. But, you know, you can make enough of it that you can see it. 
Um, but with astronomy, everything is so far away that the only thing we have from these objects is light, um, apart from space missions in, in our local solar system. Um, and so it's hard, you know, how can you tell that the light that you're seeing from an object is from, you know, a, a nearby star or is it from a galaxy really far away or is it from, you know, something literally the other side of the universe and and there's you know we have lots of theories about you know what sort of things are but you know um you know if you've ever heard about how galaxies evolve you know well we can't see any galaxy evolve um that takes billions and billions of years and humans only live for like 80 years probably <laughs> um, i hope uh, i don't live for billions of billions of years yeah. <laughs> i run out of things to do Exactly. Um, and so what we have to do is we have to take light from lots and lots and lots and lots of billions of galaxies um, all at different parts of the universe and put it all together in a theory that explains how we go from the galaxies that, you know, from how the galaxies look in the early universe to how the galaxies look today. Um, and it's a pretty good theory. I like it very much. Um, but, yeah, it's a, it's a difficult science. Um, and so things like Hubble... Things like James Webb, they really open up new avenues that we just didn't have access to before. Um, you know, the if you've seen the Hubble uh, Extreme Deep Field, which you guys, again, can't see, but I'm wearing literally on my body right now. Um, oh, nice. <laughs> uh, so, I mean, this um, – and, and, again, it's just on this Wikipedia page that I have opened just uh, by chance. Um, <laughs> this was a project that – you know, in 1996, the um, Space Telescope Science Institute director, um, which the Space Telescope Science Institute is sort of the um, um, facility that sort of manages uh, space telescopes along with NASA um, and some other places. Um, and so as, you know, the director, you get this thing called director's discretionary time. And this is pretty common around, you know, observatories. But with Hubble, it's pretty exciting because Hubble is really hard to get time on um, and, you know, was back then, still is now. So um, often, you know, the director will take proposals from people um, that, you know, may be sort of time sensitive. So, you know, I'm like, I want to look at a supernova, uh, but I don't have any time on this telescope this semester. And by the time it's the next semester when the proposals open again, the, the supernova is going to have disappeared because supernova are transient events. Um, the director could say, oh, okay, well, I've got a night scheduled in a week. You can use some of that. But this year, um, the director, not this year, in 1996, <laughs> uh, director decided that he wanted to use all of his time to study a very, very tiny patch of sky, like the size of a grain of sand held at arm's length to three arc minutes using the wide field and planetary camera on Hubble. Um, so, again, an optical camera, basically. The so, sort so of bog standard one. Yeah. Did everyone, like, take that well? Like, were they just kind of like, what are you doing? Why are you studying yeah, this one that's tiny? Yeah, the thing. It's like, as, like, to see what you're going to see? Like, what's going on? <laughs> yeah, so so this was at a point where we didn't know that there are billions and billions of galaxies in the universe. This was only, you know, um, you know, even in the um, – sort of thick 50s you know we didn't know if the milky way was the only galaxy in the universe you know there was a big debate um with shapley uh howard shapley about you know is um the andromeda galaxy a nebula so a cloud of gas in the milky way or is it another galaxy and he was on the side that it was a, just part of the milky way <laughs> uh one of the most famous astronomers that has ever lived um that's still fact that blows my mind how we've been looking I at know. the stars for billions or not billions but 
thousands of years and like we only yeah. discovered what a galaxy was like 50 yeah. years ago. Because when you look at the Andromeda galaxy in the sky, you know, we've seen beautiful images. It's, you know, a standard Mac background or something um, uh, and it's incredible. But, you know, when you see it in the sky, it's just a little grey blob essentially. <laughs> um, uh, and, you know, like looking at the Milky Way in the sky, it doesn't look like any of the other galaxies that we see with telescopes because we're seeing it from the inside. So the Milky Way is like, like for us as humans on the Earth, it's sort of a special sort of case. So, um, yeah, this patch of sky, the size of a grain of sand, absolutely chose like the most devoid of anything space to look at. And so, yeah, as Benji said, this didn't get taken very well. It's like, why are you wasting time with this extremely expensive instrument that everyone would love to have time on? And usually what you do is you give out this time that you have to other people. So now you're just taking it all for yourself. Um but of course, when the images came back, then we saw that there were, you know, 10,000 galaxies in this image, or, you know, the size of a grain of sand. And so if you like extrapolate that tiny piece of the sky over the whole sky, that gives you billions of galaxies in the universe. Um, and, you know, as we've added more and more data to these observations, um, then we've just seen that, you know, the further back it goes, the more galaxies there are, basically. Um, and even in this this um, Jupiter image from James Webb that was released just today, um, you can see galaxies in that image of Jupiter. <laughs> so, um, yeah, they're just everywhere. So our whole universe is, you know, in the blink of an eye, just gone from empty Milky Way and a few nearby galaxies, the only things in it, to there's this whole big universe there full of galaxies. <laughs> and what are we going to do about it? <laughs> so, man, telescopes, I just, I feel like every... <laughs> No, I just, sometimes I feel like I know stuff and then I hear things and we get guests on and I just realize I know so, this so little. I know so little. It's great um, that you could tell us about the scope uh, of, of your research. But, um, <laughs> look, well, telescope, I barely know a scope. <laughs> <laughs> Spitzer? Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah. With that, I just, I, before I shuffle us along to our listener question that, you know, if you haven't listened to the podcast before, we do tackle a listener question every episode, well, every episode that I make it onto, which has been all but one. Um, but you, if you find yourself with a listener question, you can email us, curiosityrat at gmail.com. But before I shuffle us onto that, I just wanted to, Steffi, one more chance. Now's your last shot. Is there anything else that you haven't had the chance to tell us about that you were hoping to get the chance to tell us about? Uh, no, I really think like uh, one of the things I've been getting into recently is just the story of astronomy. Mm. It's such an old science and there's so much history. And I'm really lucky that I'm getting to teach a subject at Melbourne mm. Uni this semester about archaeoastronomy, which is where we link archaeological evidence of observatories and built structures and things with um what's in the sky and basically make those links um and of course yeah modern astronomy is the same you know we went from what we talked about earlier where we went from our understanding of milky way as the only thing in the universe to what we know today which is that there's just billions of galaxies just so much each more than has, we thought. exactly <laughs> each of them has billions of stars billions of planets because we know that mm. generally each star has at least one planet now. Um, uh, so, yeah, it's just amazing. And I love I love talking about it and sharing astronomy with just everyone I meet, basically. Yeah, well, I appreciate you very much for sharing your knowledge and excitement about astronomy with us here on the show. 
Um, but I am going to drag us along to our listener question. And the way I normally do it is I'll read out the listener question. But um, today I'm actually going to like pass it across to Benji to read out. Yeah. Because yeah, oh just, just, just read it out. <laughs> Just yeah. read it out as written, the way right. that they're normally written on the Sure, show. I'll read this as written. Hi, Curiosity Rats. Um, why do mosquitoes want to eat me so much? I can be outside with someone else, and I'll be the only person who ends up being bitten. Even when I put on mozzie repellent, they will still try to find a way to eat around it. Is it my diet, my blood type, my magnetic personality? <laughs> my grandma would like to add that she does not get eaten by mosquitoes. She reckons it's because she's too old and stringy. Uh, from Benji. From Benji. <laughs> oh, I know that name. I've met a Benji. Um, I was going to ask before you started, did you write this? Yeah. Uh, so I thought it would be fun to answer the listener question from Benji on a show that uh, Benji's on because, like, true though, you do get bitten by mosquitoes I do. a lot. It's so annoying. And it's really funny because I used to think that I was someone who got, well, I mean, I, th I still am someone that gets bitten <laughs> by mosquitoes a lot, but I think that when I'm like outdoors with you, they just, they like you more. Yeah. I just magnet them all away. Yeah. From you're you, just, and you get they up leave being, me I am, alone. It's I am great. the mosquito attractants. Yeah. That means you don't Not need to flex, alone. but I'm the opposite. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I don't know I can sit like out there it is. You're unattractive. and uh, no one, no mosquito ever touches me it's a rare thing for me to get a mm. mosquito bite and it for it to itch me if there are lots of mozzies out they just stay away from me it's great they eat every i think i just surround myself by with people who attract mosquitoes and by default yeah. i'm just the lowest i mean that's a big order. thing is it's like it's preference right they come out they see a group of people and they're going to be it is definitely a thing that they're attracted to some more than others and if you're someone with someone that's more attractive to mosquitoes mm. than you, they'll leave you alone, even if they wouldn't normally. I know. It's prime rib compared yeah. to that old tray of Brussels sprouts. You know? <laughs> hey, I love Brussels I sprouts. You? Don't what, you shame you talk Brussels magnet? sprouts. I think I'm about a regular sort of mosquito um, victim. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, I do get mosquito bites occasionally, but um, I also don't go outside a huge amount. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, that, Maybe there's that's a correlation a of it. Um, so tell us, Kate, why are me and Matt so different at attracting mosquitoes? <laughs> Benji, well, we should hang out more. Uh, <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> I'll bring the red. <laughs> Before I launch into that, I, I just... I, did you guys realize that it's only the female mosquitoes that bite? Because I didn't know this. Oh, I didn't know. I think I did I. That's somewhere. That yeah. I no, so the males only eat flower nectar, whereas the females oh, yeah. eat both flower nectar and blood. Ooh. Because. <laughs> Bad. Um, hey, you know. <laughs> Bad well, because they use, they use the blood in their own reproduction to help develop their eggs. They use, like, animal blood. They need the proteins from the blood to help. It's metal as fuck, honestly. I think Get it's... Get this boy you know, some milk. I that honestly... Need some milk. A blood bank I want to be donating to. <laughs> but, yeah, well, yeah. But no, there are definitely different... Like, there are definitely differences in how attractive different people are to mosquitoes. And, like, but... As with everything, it's complicated. Like, there's no one single reason or single trait or a single thing causing this because mosquitoes use more than one cue to find their meal, their blood, their whatever, right? So... Okay, you bring up blood type, so I'm going to start there because you brought that. Like, do you know your blood type? Because I don't actually know my a blood positive. type. I'm O positive. I'm also O positive. Interesting. It's the most Interesting that you are the only person <laughs> no, who doesn't know. Well, because fish. I haven't been allowed to donate blood until, like, the last, you know, week or so, whenever they changed the laws around the UK. But, um, yeah, no, it is interesting that I don't know mine. But interesting that you're the one that's not O because generally the the... 
I'm going to say myth in kind of inverted commas because it's not quite a myth, but the the thing that you hear around blood type is that O, that mosquitoes are really attracted to O type. So mm. in, by that logic, right, you should be the least attractive. But I'm um, not. But also, is that just because like, that's O not... is more common, so therefore more people with O blood type get bit because... And there also are more it's of them species specific. Bit. So I found, so if you didn't know, there are more than... 3,500 species of mosquitoes worldwide. Um, I did not realize this. I was prepared for you to say more than one species of mosquitoes. More than (laughs) 3,500. And so, like, researchers found that it can be a very species-specific thing. Like, different species of mozzies prefer specific blood types. So... Every time I write down the, like, scientific name of a, like, thing, I'm like, am I going to say it? Do it. 80s alp... There is one species of mosquito uh, that that definitely has been found to favor the O blood type. There is a different species of mosquito, the Anopheles gambii, uh, that favors AB uh, blood type. Also, there was a really, I found a really interesting study that was published just September last year that was looking at, so they got one group of 80s Aegypti. Hmm. They got one species of mosquito and they fed this species of mosquito different blood types. So there was a group that got fed just A blood, a group that got fed AB, a group that got fed B, a group that got fed O, and a group that got, you know, a smorgasbord to kind of suss out their preference, right? And interestingly, they found that, you know, the it didn't just affect things like the preference, which, by the way, B was the highest blood type preference for this particular species. Um, but they found that it affected things like the rate of digestibility. So the group that was fed on the O blood type had the highest digestibility of the blood, whereas the lowest on AB and also the feeding rate and the number of females with eggs. So I guess the ones that like the blood did the job the best, right. Um, (laughs) was highest on B for both of them, which also aligns with the preference, which is like this really cool thing. So obviously there's this way that they know what they're looking for in terms of species wise with blood, which is just, I don't know. I think that's really interesting, but it's just like, it's, it's probably not the reason, the single reason, because it's just, it's so much more complicated and we need to know more. So, you know, Mm. let's go on. What else makes someone else magnetic to a mosquito? I could not personally find any research on personalities and magnetic personalities. So I've met you also. So, uh, no, we'll see. Uh, yeah, no. Uh, diet was another thing that you brought up, which is interesting because generally no, generally no, except for two weird exceptions and not in any long-term kind of diet. Like if you eat a lot of this regularly, it makes you more, no, no. It's kind of just in like an acute afterwards effect. Um, number one, beer. What? Yeah. So there was an interesting, but small, uh, study in 2002 that found that mosquitoes landed more mosquitoes landed on the subjects after drinking a glass of beer than before, which like, I have to just like side note how people research how much mosquitoes bite someone or how much they land on someone. I watched, I I saw some like figures in some papers and I was like, no. And then I found a YouTube video, which I'll definitely link these in the description. And they like, there's this guy that like this researcher that has this very rare species of mosquito that only he keeps alive with his blood. And like, they literally just stick their hands in glass tubes and let the mosquitoes (laughs) feed. 
And he feeds them. He what? gives them a lie by feeding his blood. And they, so they measure how much these mosquitoes are landing on people by literally, you know, if you're trying to see who of two hands is the most attractive oh to a God. mosquito, you've got this like Y-shaped tube, two hands at either ends of the Y, and then you release that the mosquitoes like down the bottom. And how many mosquitoes go each way? And then after a while, they, they drop down the drawbridge and they count how many mosquitoes have landed. It's, it's honestly... <laughs> And I mean, these are lab-grade mosquitoes, so you know that they're not carrying, they, like, they've been grown in a lab, Only they're not the malaria-carrying disease-carrying mozzies, like, you know, we should be concerned about mozzies in the wild. But yeah, this is how they do mosquito I'm research. I get these huge welts when mosquitoes bite mm-hmm. me, so that would kill me. Yeah, which, um, yeah, I guess you just wouldn't be a participant for a study like So, so that. I'm not doing that, but why, why, um, what else can I know? But, but, I mean, okay, I want to keep telling the story about beer, because... <laughs> Yeah, they found that um, more mosquitoes landed on subjects after a glass of beer than before, right? And they were like, they weren't really sure why. They were like, okay, well, maybe because one thing we do know increases uh, your attractiveness to mosquitoes is an increase in body temperature. And they're like, well, Mm -hmm. your body temperature increases when you drink. Maybe it's that. Mm -hmm. Um, But then they found that, like, there was no link between how warm people were or even how much ethanol was in the sweat of the people mm. as to how many mozzies landed on them. So they were still not really sure. And so then there was a 2010 study that kind of backed up this, you know, they found this beer drinking increases appeal finding. They replicated that. And they also found that temperature didn't seem to be the the thing driving that. And so they're like, maybe it's smell if it's not the smell of ethanol, but like ethanol, your body breaks that down. You don't generally sweat out ethanol. It metabolizes into different chemicals. Essentially they hypothesize it's probably something to do with that, but they haven't figured out what yet. But the Mm. thing that I love most about this 2010 study is that they hypothesize that like the reason, maybe, maybe one of the reasons that mosquitoes have evolved to seek out aromas associated with drunk people is because they indicate lower physical defenses, right? Drunk yeah. people don't swap mosquitoes as well. So if you're a mosquito and you're looking for a feast and you know that you're like likely to get swatted, you're going to go for the the slightly the less coordinated guy. person, like maybe yeah. evolutionarily, right? You're attracted to people that are drunk because evolutionarily drunk people have been worse at playing squish a mozzie. I don't I like know. That. That's I The only other thing I can think of is maybe, you know, alcohol's a blood thinner and it's just an easier meal to digest. Yeah, potentially, but then also because it's a blood thinner, you're getting less of the protein per Maybe sip the mozzies just want to get drunk. Maybe I mean, well that's also the time. other thing, right? Like we don't know and also like it's I was sad about how little research I could find following this up because apparently people just don't want to fund this sort of research, which makes Aww. me sad. But like, anyway, that's what I could find on beers. Um, the other exception diet-wise, bananas. Um, oh, I do eat a few bananas. So what I they did, this, this study bananas. that I found, they got some people to eat bananas and some people to eat grapes as a comparison. And they measured the mosquito contacts both before and then one to three hours after ingestion. Grapes had no effect on how much the mozzies were interested, um, but the bananas significantly increased it. Um, and there's some potassium, evidence to suggest yum, yum, yum. that like potassium rich foods of which banana is a potassium rich mm-hmm. food, um, can increase how much lactic acid you create, which I will touch on in a second is something that we know mozzies are attracted to. So maybe bananas just give you more attractive skin gas for want of a better <laughs> way to, uh, but in terms of like diet as a regular thing, n- n- nah, not really. So like. <laughs> 
Okay, do you want me to actually answer your question as to no, like, I'm, what else? No, I'm still like reeling because you described my skin as having an attractive gas. Um, <laughs> you have attractive <laughs> skin gas, according to mosquitoes. Um, I'm just kind of, so like, it's definitely not that because like one to three hours, I'm not like eating my evening banana before. Yeah, I no, it's out. it's almost certainly your not that. These banana. are just. <laughs> I mean, yeah, could no. it just be that Benji's a very warm person? It could be. I I warm think so. That was a compliment. The biggest. <laughs> The biggest thing is carbon dioxide. Okay. Uh, <laughs> which, like, predominantly you exhale, right? That's that's the biggest source of, like, human carbon dioxide is from exhaling, which, like, I think I've talked about on this this on the podcast before, definitely, but it's a, it's a misconception that we, like, breathe in mostly oxygen and then breathe out mostly carbon dioxide. Actually, we breathe in – the air we breathe in has got a lot of shit in it. The air we breathe out has got a lot of shit in. But we the air we breathe in is about 21% oxygen and, like, 0.04% CO2. The air we breathe out is about 16% oxygen and about 44 carbon dioxide. So we're still breathing out more oxygen than we're breathing in. We're just breathing in, out a lot more carbon dioxide than we initially – inhaled mm. not relevant to the question but just something that i think i don't know is a common misconception about how yeah, air i am um, i did this with um at scienceworks we have a little um demonstration in in one of the shows where you have a bottle popper essentially you put mm. air and propanol in you light it on fire and it makes a, a flame mm-hmm. <laughs> um and so yeah you, you know if you set it off and then you have to set it off again pretty quickly it's got no air left in it because mm. it's all been burnt up so yep. you like breathe into it and I think sometimes the kids are like, but you breathe You're not into breathing it. in why? oxygen. Yeah, why are you saying there's oxygen? And they're like, no, I'm, you know, I, I'm not taking in all that oxygen. Yeah. That I, well, I mean, that's that I how C, uh, uh, I was, that's how CPR works. CPR <laughs> would not work if we only exhaled carbon dioxide, mm. right? CPR works because we can breathe oxygen into someone's lungs um, if we need it. But setting a bottle on fire is a much cooler way to explain it's that. It's very fun. Because uh, <laughs> um, you have a cork in the top and it yeah. like flies up into the air. It's very impressive. Once it landed right on my forehead and the children all uh, laughed. Oh <laughs> that. That's adorable. Yes, I, love, I love my job. <laughs> I love your job for you. That sounds really fun. Thank you. <laughs> um, but yeah, CO2, we know that carbon dioxide levels are a huge factor in, quote unquote, how attractive you are to a mosquito. And there's a few different reasons for that. Number one it i don't i don't know how else to say this except that it like carbon dioxide like activates the mosquito it like triggers them to fly and fly faster like it binds to receptors on them that kind of just like wakes them up and sets them off and goes like right food time there's something going on there's something nearby it like it it activates them and then number 2 they use it to help orient themselves as the co2 travels like you know on the air currents etc they can be like they can sniff it out essentially they they can use it to help find the source they can follow it and it's because they have i mean i guess it is smelling right they are smell sensing cells like in their mouth like receptors sorry like in their mouth and they have three different types of co2 sensing receptors in their mouth that's how like important it is to like mozzies but I just – there was one particular study, a 2014 study that I found that was – I thought was really interesting where they showed how important this is by essentially they genetic they created genetically modified mozzies and they got rid of their GR3. So they got rid of one of their carbon dioxide sensing receptors. They were just like, nah, you can't tell. You can't sense it. 
Um, and so these modified mosquitoes no longer got excited when the carbon dioxide was mm. puffed into the air. And they were also 15% worse than their mm. unmodified relatives um, at hunting out a person in a large enclosed area. So they were like, no, like no longer able to do that, even though we know carbon dioxide's not the only thing. Mm. It kind of, it almost seems like it acts as like a gatekeeper of sorts and just like almost makes them unaware of any other factor that might be which is just really interesting and it's just one of those things that like you know yeah and like it makes it makes sense to me right because like if you're looking for blood you probably are looking for something that's alive yes if you're looking for something that's alive like a really really good indicator of like animal life is is carbon dioxide right Mm -hmm. because you're not going to get that from a plant because they take it in and they release oxygen right like a good indicator of animal life is carbon dioxide. So I guess if you want to get bitten less, just stop breathing. Oh. <laughs> uh, it's not know? just mosquitoes as well. I'm pretty sure something that some of my coworkers has told me, because I, I, I have heard that before, that what attracts mosquitoes is carbon dioxide, though I didn't know the science behind it, mm. but it also attracts ticks. So mm. probably um, if you're a person who releases more carbon dioxide than another mm. person then you're going to attract more ticks and a couple of my co-workers they are um very very skinny lads so they clearly have very very fast working metabolisms which i think means yep. they're probably going to breathe out more carbon dioxide yep. than the average joe and they get you know maybe like two or three tick bites a year whereas i haven't gotten a yeah. single one. <laughs> yeah i was gonna say brag, metabolism because you know? like you know think about ways that co2 increases like you there's acute times like when you're exercising or whatever obviously you're breathing harder but just generally if you're someone with a high metabolism you're just gonna be and that's like so you know are you pregnant benji uh (laughs) okay cool because like studies have found that mozzies are more attracted to pregnant people than non-pregnant people but that is the reason they think that that mozzies are more attracted to pregnant people than non-pregnant people is because Mm. pregnant people i didn't know this but pregnant people actually exhale 21 percent greater volume per breath than non-pregnant people. And so they're exhaling more CO2. But like, that's the other thing, right? Is if you have a fast metabolism, you're going to be just generally releasing more CO2 Mm -hmm. and you're just going to be a mozzie and apparently a tick attractant, which I think that checks out. I think you've got a pretty fast metabolism, right? So the the thing that's stunning about this answer is that my grandma doesn't. An older person probably doesn't. Mm. Too mm. old and stringy. She yeah. was right. <laughs> Amazing. I have more. Oh gosh, I have. So- I'll try to be quick because I know I know we've gone on for a while, but like I just there's so much that's, like this was just not a simple. I thought there would just be such a simple like this is why Mozzie's like no. There are so many factors, and another one that I just want to quickly talk about that I kind of alluded to a little bit earlier. It's like lactic acid, but like sweat, mm. right? Sweat can also draw mozzies in, which is partly the moisture. They like the moisture, like the damp kind of also the warmth that is normally associated with you when you're sweating. Um, But also like the chemicals that are in your sweat are something that we call volatile, which essentially means they just easily turn into a vapor and therefore Mm -hmm. can float out and mozzies can sense them. Right. And most of these are formed by we've got little cute little communities of bacteria living all (laughs) over our skin. Um, and so part of that like mozzie magnet equation has to do with these bacterial communities and people who have more skin dwelling bacteria have been shown to attract more of 
I'm not. Anopheles Gambian. The African malaria mosquito, oh, no. for example, mm. um, but like one particular species of, of mosquito has been associated with, you know, people with just more bacteria on their skin. Mm. And then one of these compounds in particular that this bacteria, don't look so mortified, it's it's uh-huh. not an insult. You're allowed to have bacteria. Good ba- Bacteria is good on people's skin, mm. just saying. I just don't like the theory of me having like you know? so much more bacteria than everyone CO2 else. CO2 and bacteria, you know. Uh, no, but <laughs> so one figure of these, out what the local one of these mozzies are. What was that, Matt? <laughs> Got to figure out what the local mozzies are in your area and then we can yeah. track down what yeah. factor yeah, yeah, about yeah. you is most attractive to them. So maybe you have the cleanest and... skin in yeah. the world and you just, it's just I a know, different find type out. of mozzie that likes you. Um, but one of the compounds that, you know, probably of, of all of these like bacterial like secreted compounds, the one that's probably most prominent um, that has the biggest role is lactic acid. Um, and there was this 2001 study where researchers took sweat samples from volunteers and ranked them from most loved by mosquitoes to least mo- <laughs> I just love these studies because yeah. I'm just like, let's take some sweat and feed some mozzies. Anyway. From king of mozzie high. Oh, <laughs> truly. It's, it's wild. But essentially, you know, the really interesting thing is that the popular people were always popular, right? The mosquitoes consistently loved their sweat samples doesn't matter like they were collected on 28 different days over the course of the year so it doesn't seem to fluctuate based on that if you just have a high lactic acid production you know we love that that like the yeah it seemed to be because of the lactic acid because the most attractive sweat had three between three and five times more lactic acid than the least attractive sweat Mm. but on top of that the researchers were then like, but what happens if we add some lactic acid to the mm. other sweat that the mozzies that don't sense. like? Yeah, yeah. Um, and then the mozzies suddenly were like, actually, no, nah, this shit's great. <laughs> this shit, this is this, this is the good shit. And more than three times as many mozzies chose an altered sweat sample over their previous favorite, um, mm. just because lactic acid was added. So, you know, I mean, is that enough or do you want to know why? Too bad I'm going to tell you why. <laughs> <laughs> Look, spit as many mosquito facts. I don't know. Like. They've got a lactic acid sensor in their antennae, not in their mouth, mm. so it's different to the way they sense CO2. But it's also, look, I could. <laughs> the point is, how much lactic acid you release and how attracted a mozzie is to that. Like in the end, it comes down to just a very complicated mix of genetics, microbiome, mm-hmm. so what bacteria and like hygiene and just water vapor and there are just so many different potential interacting things that just genetics is another complicated one where they've done like genome wide association studies where they found different genes that are associated with mozzies being more or less attracted to people but they haven't figured out what those genes are actually doing or why changes in those genes are making some people more or less attracted to mozzies uh, like there's just, there's still just a lot of like, we don't know, but also there's a lot, there's one more thing though, that <laughs> I'm going to tell you because it's not a biological factor. It's something that you can possibly change, okay. but also possibly not, um, <laughs> fashion. Oh <No>. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Mozzies uh, are really attracted to dark colored clothing uh, and you know, you wear a lot of all black, non colorful. Benji's a very fashionable young man. Yeah, oh. no, this is why I'm like, it's a thing you can change, but also you can't, can't. because you don't. I can make myself more attractive to mosquitoes, is what you're saying. I mean, maybe, but Dress also, <laughs> but also that, okay, so they're attracted to dark colored clothing and there's a bunch of studies dating back like 
centuries here, right, that have shown that mozzies love to land on dark colored surfaces, everything from painted barn roofs to boxes and clothing. Interestingly, this is where Matt's gonna maybe get angry at me for being political and give me two <laughs> seconds where I'm, there is nothing, there is nothing on skin color. There is every, really? every image that I saw, every diagram, every figure, it's all just white people's skin. And I read one kind of dodgy looking study saying that when they use skin tone patches compared to fabric, that there wasn't a preference. So maybe there's just not as much variation in skin tone. And I'm like, well, maybe you're just ignoring the variation that does exist in skin tone. I don't really want to get too political about it. This is not my field of research, but I just felt like a huge elephant in the room that like, I didn't want to not mention. That was, I mean, look, that was um, the first question that came to my mind is like, would people of color be Yeah, as soon as mosquitoes? I read that they, mozzies were more attracted to dark fabrics, that was my first thought too. And do you know, like I went on Google Scholar, I, try, I could not find <laughs> anything. And I was alarmed by that fact. And I wanted to just be angry about that on a public platform <laughs> and then move back to fabrics. So, yeah, I, the one thing that I will say in terms of like, you know, they, they did studies that showed that they've done it in, they've replicated it in so many ways, but like black, blue, and red are the most attractive colors. Yellow and white are the least green and tan are kind of in between. Um, but there was one thing that one study found that it's not just the wavelength, AKA the color of light, but it's how much is light is reflected off the cloth. Right. Mm -hmm. And basically, mozzies like things that aren't super reflective. So they like no and... shiny. Um, I couldn't <laughs> actually find any studies testing sequins or glitter or shimmery fabrics Ugh. as mozzie deterrents. And I want to see that science, please mm -hmm. and thank you. But um, potentially Fox dress yourself as a bring disco back ball and you'll be fine. It's my right. solution that I've got for I you. I can do that. <laughs> um, that is interesting because I tend to wear a lot of darker clothes and that. Maybe I just have a really aggressively poor metabolism. And also maybe really like some of those genes that we've found to be associated, a lot of, most of those weren't even associated with being more attractive to mozzies. A lot of them were protective. Like there are a lot of like SNPs and gene variations that people were found to be associated with being less attractive to mozzies. We just don't know why yet. So maybe like, maybe that's you. Well, you and Matt share some genes. How's your mozzie tolerance? Um, I mean, I get bitten a lot, but there was also a really interesting study where they looked at fraternal twins versus... Um, not fraternal twins, identical twins is the word that I'm looking for. Um, <laughs> and they found that, uh, yeah, like even between twins that share a lot of genes, but not all, there was a difference. Mm. Um, like the identical twins definitely had similar levels of <laughs> mozzie attractiveness, which um, wasn't shared when not all of the genes were shared. So even though Matt and I share a lot of genes, we don't share all of them. Um, mm. I don't know. There are just... <sighs> This is the whole, I could have done a whole podcast on it. Bloody <laughs> listener question on mozzies. But essentially, look, it's probably your personality. Okay. I think it <laughs> That's the most scientific answer I have. Either uh, I've got real milky sweat or I breathe. No, I genuinely, <laughs> the best conclusion I have for you personally as an individual is uh, high milky metabolism sweat. and probably just natural high levels of CO2 emission. But, um... My money's on milky sweat. I don't know. Milky sweat. You know, you just milky sweat. Yep. And that's what I got for you. Um, and you know what? I reckon that is the perfect note for so, us to wrap up. This, yeah, this I hope that answers your listener question, Benji. If anyone just... else uh, has a listener question, as a listener whose question has been answered, this feels so good. <laughs> like this comprehensive discussion. <laughs>
you, you we joked before about it being slower than Google and worse, and I could, this is better than Google. <laughs> this is the premium Google. There we go. You, you heard it here first, folks. You can it's email. Worth the wait, folks. Email your listener question. Yeah, I think this got sent through in January, and I just got to it. Apologies, <laughs> but uh, you can send your listener questions through to is curiosity. This what it's like rat. to use Bing. <laughs> curiosityrat at gmail.com and I will do a more comprehensive much better answer than Google that will make you feel good maybe mm. asterisk uh, <laughs> depends but we'll do my best uh, so with that I thank you everyone for listening I first before I plug all of our regular socials etc I just want to once again thank you Steffi so much yeah. for giving your time your knowledge your enthusiasm all of it um it has been an absolute honor if our listeners have loved what you've said and want to hear more of it where can they find you plug yes. your pluggables I'll link all of this in the description below but shout them out anyway yeah, so my podcast, Big Education, uh, where I don't do all the rambling, I get to interview amazing astronomers and amateur astronomers and education professionals in astronomy. Uh, so, yes, you get to hear other amazing people talking and occasionally me being like, ah, awesome. <laughs> <laughs> um, that's at spigedification.com.au. Uh, uh, on Twitter at Spag Podcast and on Instagram at Spagedification. I think Spagedification, but maybe Spagedification Podcast. Just check both of them anyway. <laughs> there will be a link in the description. Scroll down, folks, if you want to find it. Yep. Uh, my Twitter is at Astro underscore Steffi, where I mostly rant about academia. Yeah. Uh, and then if you like knitting, my Instagram is at Steffi B, S-T-E-P-H-O-E-B-E. My name is not Stevie. You might be wondering. It sounds like Steffi B when you say it out loud. That's Love it. that. Amazing. <laughs> So many cool places we can find more of you, and I absolutely love that. If you want to find more of us, if you, I mean, you found your way here, so you obviously <laughs> know some things. But if for some reason you're listening to the show and do not yet follow us on social media, we'd love to see you there. You can follow us on Twitter at Curiosity Rat or on Instagram at Curiosity Rat. We also have a Facebook page. Just, you know, Chuck Curiosity killed the rat in there, and it should pop up. We do also have a Patreon. We always get awkward about plugging it because we're like, you know, it's such a big, important thing to us that, you know, knowledge is free and accessible and we want all of this to be as available and free as possible. But if you do happen to find yourself with a disposable income and appreciating that the, the work that we do put into making this show happen, you can find us on Patreon. You can chuck us as little as a dollar a month and that helps us a lot and means a lot if you do do that. Um... I guess with that also, I don't know, Benji, do you want do you want to replug yourself? Replug yourself? Yeah. You know what? You were here too. You you deserve to plug. I'll get replugged. It's that kind of podcast now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, you can find me on Instagram at Astro Benji is the probably the place where I am the most active. So Yeah. Um, I mean you can find my personal Instagram is at Kate Huckstep and I think my Twitter is at Huckstep Kate because I like to be difficult <laughs> like that. Um, and those are, I tend to post mostly sciencey stuff there if you want my science stuff that's not this show, which as we've alluded to includes a radio show, includes all sorts of other stuff. Matt, is there anything you'd like to share while we're just having a family plug <laughs> session, you know? I mean, look, I've got a SoundCloud and a YouTube yeah, out there. Yeah, step, you know. If if you like the intro music and outro music of this show, you can find the person who composed that 
on SoundCloud at uh, Muckstep, yeah. M-U-C-K-S-T-E-P. Honestly, I haven't posted on there <laughs> in like two years. I haven't made music in like two years. Maybe I'll get back into it. Maybe I won't. It's honestly a lot of shit posts and terrible quality mashups. But uh, hey, look, I have a what? good time on your SoundCloud. If that's what you're into. <laughs> Um, stuff that wasn't released on SoundCloud is on YouTube because of copyright infringement. Um, so that's <laughs> fun. So you can also find me on YouTube under the same name, Muxsteps Mashups on there. Um, Love it. I have like five yeah. videos on there that again, haven't posted in like two you years. You know what? <laughs> It's a plug. It's a, it's a plug day. We're doing it. We're it's doing a plug it. Move, we're plugging it. Oh gosh. And with that, I think that draws this episode to a close. Thank you well, so I much. I was just going to say thank you all so much for having me, giving oh. me a free oh, therapy session. So oh, I uh, always hope that it wasn't all an unintelligible mess about our favorite uh, telescopes. No, I I went in world. with so little knowledge about any telescope <laughs> other than James Webb and I I feel like I have left with just so much more Too so much. thank you. Too much. No such thing. No such thing. Nah. I love learning. I love it. Alright well peace out listeners and we will catch you next month. Bye. Yes. Curiosity. Curiosity. Kill the rat.